Welcome listeners to another episode of Listen, Learn and Love hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is a returning guest, my friend, Dr. Ryan Anderson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, His full story is on episode 443, but we're going to talk in this episode about a new book that we kind of hinted about in that episode, but now this book is out. So I asked him, Ryan, to be back on the podcast to talk about the book because you can now order the book. The book is called The Choice to Leave Abuse, and it's at Amazon and it will be at Deseret Book in April. And I'll read it. I'll read the description of the book so you can get an idea of the type of book it is and if and the things that I'm going to go between Dr. Anderson and Ryan Anderson in this podcast talks about. Um, I'll read now. God strongly condemns any form of abuse. In recent years, the struggles of Latter-day Saints in abusive relationships has made national headlines. The media attention has highlighted a deeply unfortunate perception. Many Latter-day Saints fear that by choosing to leave an abusive relationship, they're at risk in breaking their covenants with God. Mental health professionals and law enforcement officers who work with Latter-day Saint populations attest to the number of people who continue to be hurt, humiliated, and even killed because they believe it is their religious obligation to endure abuse to the end. This damaging misperception and the traditions that have helped create and maintain it must be corrected. With a direct and straightforward discussion of the doctrines and teachings about abuse, this book not only provides clear guidance for bishops and other local leaders on how to respond to abuse, but it also will help you discover God's true feelings about abuse and the love he has for all who suffer. Learn to identify the signs of abuse in your own relationship and in others. Overcome roadblocks that may be hindering escape from an abusive situation. Follow the path of healing in mind, body, and spirit. So with that, I'll just turn it over to you, Ryan, to kind of talk whatever you want to talk about the book, or it's up to you. So I I think where I'd like to start is just an acknowledgement that this is a hard topic. Um, It really touches on some things that are very tender points for people. And also for for people who are in leadership positions in the church, like bishops, Relief Society presidents, I also acknowledge that this is a frightening topic. Um, It's funny, every time I think about this, I think about that portion of the Book of Mormon where a bunch of Nephites have brought people to King Mosiah and said, hey, look, these people, they were too young to remember the teachings of King Benjamin, and there's all kinds of wrong things going on. And Mosiah takes one look at them and says, well, I'm not going to judge them, and takes them to Alma. And Alma's internal panic is kind of palpable through the scriptures. He's looking at this. He's saying, I don't feel equipped to know what to do in this situation. I don't know how to approach this. And it talks about him fearing to do wrong in the sight of the Lord. And so there's this whole portion where you see him going to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord actually really validates him for those feelings, for for the desire to do the right thing, the concern about doing the wrong thing, and eventually gives him very clear guidance. And the clear guidance he gives him is, look, those who are willing to repent, here's the process you'll go through. Those who don't repent, here's the process you'll go through. 
And, and part of what that meant is those who, who weren't repenting, who weren't changing, who weren't acknowledging the damage they were doing to other people did go through disciplinary action. And some of them were excommunicated. And that was what God told him to do. That was a necessary part of the process. It wasn't something that God took delight in or Alma took delight in. But at that moment, it was about that person's relationship with God and the opportunity they needed to be made right with God if they're willing to take it. But it's also about the people who were being hurt and damaged and what they needed for a source of healing. And so when I wrote this book, one of the things I recognized, and I should be clear, I've, I've never served as a bishop. I've served as an executive secretary. I've served in the presidency of uh, an elders quorum. Um, but I've spoken with lots and lots of people who served in those positions. And most of them say, one, I don't feel like I had a lot of, of training. I didn't know what to do. Um, I wasn't sure how to handle these situations. And so in the absence, it's kind of like what, what we all have that experience when we become parents. And you remember that when you were your kid, no matter how much you loved your parents, most people had at least one or two things where they're saying, when I become a parent, I'm not going to do that. Exactly. Um, and then you find yourself in that parenting moment going, oh, man, I opened my mouth and my mother or my father came out. And I did exactly that thing I promised myself I would never do. In the absence of not knowing what to do, we tend to revert to either what was done to us or what we've seen others do. And so I think there's an acknowledgement for a lot of people in the church when we think about what has been the historical experience people have had with talking about abuse, identifying abuse, and responding to abuse in the church. I wish the picture was more flattering, but, you know, as the scriptures say, the truth will set us free. And so there is a little bit of the truth that we have to speak. What, what most people experienced was, one, leaders in the church felt that they had a mandate to tell people that they needed to stay married at all costs, um, even if that led to them being killed in a domestic violence situation, because there was this concept that the temple covenant, the sealing covenant, required that. And so time and time again, this is what, what they experienced. And so in, that, in the absence of, of acknowledging, hey, abuse is breaking the covenant, your covenant's been broken, you're endangered. This is no longer about whether you're keeping a covenant or not. This is you living in a dangerous situation where the other member has broken their covenant. That then became, you know, as, as people do when they can't quite understand why something is the way it is. For example, we go to the gospel um, essay on blacks and the priesthood. Well, why weren't blacks allowed to have the priesthood? And then the, the essay itself says, well, over time, people have put forth different theories, all of which have since been disavowed by the church. Well, I think something very similar happened in the case of abuse. You heard a lot of theories kind of come out. Well, if, if abuse is going on and, you know, here's what needs to happen. It must be that the, the wife, I'm going to use, abuse can happen to either husbands or wives. It happens much more commonly to wives. So most of the time here, I'm going to be referring to women. Um, is that, well, maybe the wife is, is not being sufficiently submissive to her husband. Well, there, there is no temple covenant saying a wife should be submissive to her husband, but that's a whole other conversation to have. 
Um, or perhaps it's the wife is not being sexually available enough to the husband or is not attractive, no longer looks the way she did when she was 22 or whatever it may be. So there's been all of these theories. And, you know, maybe the way for them to handle it is to go to the temple more, to pray more, to sacrifice more, to do all these things, to make sure that they, every time they state something to their husband, they put a question mark on the end. So it doesn't feel like his quote unquote priesthood is being challenged. And, and I think now when we talk about it, most of us can recognize, okay, that's not right. But again, in the absence of knowledge, in the absence of knowing what to do better, it's amazing how often when we're in situations of stress, that that's what we return to. So where my desire to write this book came from uh, has a couple of origin points. One are some experiences of, of abuse I myself experienced. Um, some happening even inside a church building by people I was told I should be able to trust. Um, some was experiences of abuse that people who were very important to me experienced. And having them had the experience on the one hand of some leaders who didn't know how to respond, and in fact, parts of their responses became destructive. And on the other hand, having some leaders who responded wonderfully. Um, and then as I've grown and, and as you have worked as a professional, as a marriage and family therapist, you can't really work in marriage and family without experiencing exposure to abuse. So given that one in four women are reporting that they've been abused at some point in time in their life, and by the way, we have every reason to believe that that statistic is a vast underreporting, then if you work as a family therapist and you work with four clients, chances are you've worked with at least one case of abuse, whether you knew you were doing it or not. And so part of what I wanted to do was to help raise awareness of what, what, what is important to know about abuse, both from a scientific point of view, because the science around understanding abuse has really grown, particularly in the last 10 years. But also, what are the church doctrines? What are the church's policies? And where, where I really found that this became really important to me was short, shortly after President Nelson became the prophet. Actually, the very first thing he did was announce some significant changes in the church's policies around detecting and responding to abuse. And at that point in time, I had been looking for many years for some kind of great comprehensive resource. And I, I wasn't able to find it. You know, I did a lot of research, finding things here and there, and kind of finally had this feeling of, well, if you think it should exist, maybe you should write it. And I think I felt a lot like Moses saying, oh, there's got to be somebody better for this job. Um, but it was just kind of that persistent feeling. And so when I think about this book, there are a couple of things that I wanted to make sure that it contains. One, for people who've been through abuse, almost a universal experience is that they have had things twisted and turned back on them to say, what is happening to you is your fault. And oftentimes, even what is happening to you is what God wants to have happening to you. And there's lots of ways that those messages get sent. And what I wanted to be able to do was turn around and say, what is the actual truth? And there are lots of pieces to the actual truth. One thing is that literally abuse has nothing to do with the characteristics of its victims and has everything to do with the characteristics of the abusers. Anger does not cause abuse. 
For example, how many people get angry and don't abuse? Most people. Most anger doesn't lead to abuse. Um, physical changes, disappointments, stresses, all those things that sometimes people blame as, well, this is why you're getting abused. Being, you know, being socially awkward, being shy. None of those things. Abuse is found in the abuser, not in the victim. But the very first thing the abuser almost always tries to do is say, this is why what's happening, if they even admit it's happening at all, this is why it's the victim's fault. And so what I wanted to do was bring in both science and doctrine to correct that core misunderstanding. Because flowing from that, everything else depends on a proper understanding of that piece. Well, what do you do about it when abuse is occurring? How do you answer that question? Well, it depends. Is it the victim's fault or is it the abuser's fault? Everything flows from there. And one of the things that I think is really important is I think if, if I were to ask, and again, I might be proven wrong, but if I were to gather a, a group of 100 bishops together and ask and say, do you know the church's policy on detecting and responding to abuse? Do you know the process that the church is asking us to go through? Well, let's just say I feel pretty strongly that right now I would not get a majority of those bishops being able to tell me what it actually is. And again, it's not my job to study the ark. Um, it's not my job to come in and tell the church what to do. But what I have tried to do is find what the church is saying and say, hey, can I provide an avenue for people to to think about this, to become more aware of it, but also to see based off of that, with that basic understanding, what are the next steps that they can take? So this book approaches things from a variety of, of perspectives. One is the perspective of what if I feel like I'm being abused? How do I make sense out of my experience? What options do I have? Second, this is for those of us who have people we love that we're worried about. I, I know so often we're scared about doing the wrong thing, saying the wrong thing, we're not doing anything and knowing what's going to be helpful or what would potentially be harmful. And then also for, for leaders of the church, knowing what, what would the Lord ask me to do in this situation? So you'll find I've, I've researched this very extensively, both from a scientific point of view and also from a doctrinal point of view. And over the years, I've spoken with so many people. I've heard from their experiences um, throughout, you'll have the experiences of many people that I kind of throw in, both talking about what they experienced. But the other thing I recognize is that if people are saying, okay, so now I'm able to identify abuse, I'm able to recognize the choices I have, and I feel like I want to make the choice to leave, to pursue something better. How do I even do that? And that's one of the, the big challenges of abuse, because so often in abusive situations, the way that the power and control work in the relationship, that, that the, the things that would make leaving easy, like having economic stability, having a safe place to go, um, knowing how to handle all of the, the legal things that will be a part of that, most of those are an entire chasm division away from what the person feels is possible. So the other thing I wanted to do is to help help people who are, are looking at this know what are the resources available to them? What does healing look like? What are the steps they can take? Who can they go to to get the type of help that they're going to need? 
Um, it's impossible to make this a, a one-stop, completely comprehensive shop. But the idea was from this, having walked through this process with many people over the years, these are the most common things that I've found to be helpful. And then I also include a couple of, of very detailed stories about what people actually went through to get from that, that dark pit of despair to a life that is full and happy and meaningful. So that's kind of what you can expect to find in this book. I love that you've written this book. I don't think a book like this exists in the church. Is that fair to say, Ryan? I've not been able to find one, which is why I kind of felt like it. I needed to try to write it. It's actually interesting. I was um, speaking with a BYU professor the other day. He invited me to come in and speak with his class. And he told me, I've been thinking about writing this very book and I've been dreading it. And so I'm glad you wrote it instead. <laughs> <laughs> and this is, you know, we're learning, I think, in our faith to talk about more um, difficult topics. Our leaders are, as you mentioned, President Nelson made changes here, and then you've run with it, acting on your impressions. To me, that's really honoring your covenants to take your skills and gifts and to write this into a book that can help us as Latter-day Saints do better. I wrote down the line, when we know better, we do better. Yeah. And um, I think local leaders and parents want to do the right thing, but often they have, ha I'm a business guy when I was called to be a singles word bishop, but I had no experience in this space. And, um, I, you know, I'm going to turn it back to you, but just some thoughts that came to my mind is I would encourage um, parents and local leaders to read this. Um, you may not be in either of those two groups in an abusive relationship yourself, but you may be counseling people that will be, obviously with local leaders, but even parents, um, as your kids date and as just other people that you have in your life that will reach out to you. I think we say love the neighbor and be patient and tolerant, but I think you help us develop principles to know, is this a toxic relationship I need to get out of? And yeah. I think you're helping us understand that we need to get out. I would invite people that are, you know, or feel like, um, you know, obviously, if you think you're in a toxic relationship, read the book. Um, you may not need to be married to read the book and be in a toxic relationship. I'm thinking of one situation where, um, as a YSA bishop, I had a—this uh, has happened a couple times, and some of the other bishops shared without a name the same situation, where um, in a single relationship, that it was a toxic relationship. And in one of these relationships, it actually got sexually active— and after going pretty slow, I felt like the sexual activity was just about abuse. There was really le very little intent on one of the partners to be sexually active, and I felt an impression after going really slow to treat the sexual activity very different for the two people because I felt like if I treated it the same, it would sort of connect them in the abusive relationship and wouldn't separate them. So I felt with one partner there was very little intent and actually very little sin there, but the sexual activity that was going on was more about control and manipulation and keeping someone in a toxic situation and that and that abusive situation. So that was a very unique experience for me because I think my natural reaction was they've both been sexually active and obviously sort of the same type of sin, so we should treat this just the same. And I counseled with my stake president, and he felt the same way, and we, you know, that was a very unique situation, but... I think I probably would have done better if I'd read this book before then. Um, and just recognizing well, that that there's complexities of every relationship and a priesthood leader, when we know better, we do better. 
it really warms my heart that you approach that that way. Um, I think one of the things that we really kind of talk about when you dig into the science of abuse is it is about power and control. And one of the things you're always looking at are power imbalances. And there's a lot of a lot of ways that people can create or exploit power imbalances. You know, you think about how much sexuality plays upon our desire to be connected, to be wanted, to be important. And there are a lot of people who will use sex and sexuality not as a way to connect, but as a way to control. And so I'm I'm so grateful that you discerned that and recognized there's again, you'd think about from your from your position as a bishop or even as a law enforcement um, officer in a situation where someone's being physically attacked, you know, that they might be hitting the other person. The person defending themselves may hit back, but those are two different things. When someone is having, you know, is using sex or sexuality to motivate, control, or humiliate someone else, and the other person is either feeling powerless or like they don't have a choice to say no, or this is the only way that they'll get that sense of validation. Yes, it may involve sexual contact on both sides, but it's not the same phenomenon. So I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, you know, and also this idea that you know any relationship has the potential to be abusive. It can be a married couple. It can absolutely be dating couples. In fact, one of the one of the big stories I share in there is about two separate dating relationships someone had. They were kind of one abusive relationship after another. Um, you'd think that that would be easier for someone to think about and manage than a marriage. Surprisingly, it's not. Um, the only thing that's different from a Latter-day Saint point of view is, well, we haven't made a covenant. But again, more the more we understand about, well, what does that covenant actually mean? But absolutely. But it can also be, can be siblings. It can be grandparents. It can be a boss. I've known lots of bosses um, who have abusive relationships with their employees or vice versa. And so recognizing the red flags and, and knowing how to navigate those situations is useful. And, you know, uh, one thing I'd recommend to anyone, again, is if, if, if you just simply have relationships, if you just know people, you are going to know people who are who either have been abused or are being abused. When you take a look at the statistics, again, we mentioned one in four women. Um, statistics on men are a little fuzzier, somewhere between one and six. If you have 10, 20, 50 relationships in your lives, people you care about, just the statistics play out that you know someone who either has struggled or is struggling with this. And knowing, knowing well, what can I do about this? What are my options? It is hard for me to imagine someone where knowing more about abuse isn't going to have some kind of a positive impact on their life and on the lives of the people around them. Would you encourage people before they're, you know, in their teens to read this book, but just to have better principles before they even start dating and getting into relationships, Dr. Anderson? Oh. Absolutely. Um, another resource I would, would mention as well, there's a hashtag, hashtag that's not love. Uh, that was kind of made for, for teens as well. But I think for so many of us, um, let me just say it this way. When we look for positive models of relationships, uh, especially for models that teens tend to get exposed to and share with each other, they're kind of hard to come across. 
Um, I take a look at a lot of what's portrayed as romance, both in literature and on film. And it blows my mind how many of those are actually these sort of toxic, controlling, abusive relationships. I think the more the more children can understand about what abuse is versus what healthy relationships are, the better. Um, this book, I didn't write it with teens in mind, but it is teen friendly. Okay. Um, you could hand this to a teen to say, hey, look, going into this, there's also, boy, there's a number of other books. There's like one, how, how to avoid dating a jerk, I think is what it's called, <laughs> which is a great book for teens. Uh, I think how to avoid falling in love with a jerk, that's what it is. Um, but absolutely, I, I think the whole idea in general, right? One of the things I think is really important in parenting is anything you try to shield your child from entirely means it's something that they're going to have to try to figure out entirely on their own once they've left your home. What a powerful principle you just said. That is just gold. Yeah. Um, that is, and, really, so if, and we don't like to talk about those things sometimes. You know, we, we want to, to protect kids from it, but that means that when they get out there, they will get blindsided by it. Um, and, and so this idea of saying, look, if, if, if we don't teach our children, hey, there's, here's what abuse is, and here's how it plays on certain emotion, real legitimate emotional needs that you have. Here's what developing a healthy relationship looks like versus an unhealthy one. Well, sad to say, the way most people learn about it is by going through it themselves um, and, and getting completely sort of twisted and turned upside down. And so that's what I'd say is anything, you know, we're better for our children to learn about abuse, about sexuality, about topics that are often treated as taboo or uncomfortable. Um, we do our children a great service by saying, hey, look, there are hard things in the world and I'm going to be here to help you learn and grow and know about them. And ideally, I'll help you know about them before you have to encounter them in the wild, so to speak. So we've I've forecasted for you, a front-loaded. So, so when you run into it, you're like, oh, yeah, this is that thing we talked about. And you have at least some kind of a paradigm to try to navigate it with. I can't tell you, and I'm sure, Richard, you've run into this too, how many people talk about whether they run into pornography for the first time or they, they see someone using drugs for the first time or something like that, and they're so shocked. It's so outside of what their relationship with their parents have been that they now have no idea how to go back and talk to their parents about it. Um, you know, how do I even start this conversation? Well, if mom and dad have started the conversation before, then that's no longer a worry for the young man or for the young woman. And so that's, that's just a general parenting principle is our job is to help prepare our children for the road and forecast what's over the next hill rather than try to bulldoze the road and hope that someone will bulldoze the road when they're outside of our house. That's just a general principle I find is, is trustworthy. I love that. Um, talk about spiritual abuse. Um, and we talked about DNC 121 before we went live. Just talk about that type of type of abuse. Introduce what that is. I think it's part of your book, and just for your listeners. And spiritual abuse is is not something we tend to talk a lot about. Um, but the idea is, abuse in general is about power and control. And there's a beautiful section of the Doctrine and Covenants, Doctrine and Covenants 121 
where it talks about the concept of how the priesthood works, but also the counterfeit of priesthood authority, which is unrighteous dominion. What can happen within the church is people can get the idea that either because they hold the priesthood or they have a certain position within a family or they've held certain callings, that that therefore empowers them to compel other people or to control other people. And I've seen this in a number of different um, forms. I am aware of a number of families where the way the father approached both the wife and the children was, as the patriarch of the family, I am the one who has the stewardship for all personal revelation in the family. And therefore, if there's something going on, I will pray about it, I will get the guidance, and I will tell you what to do. So we could have a whole long conversation about the whole idea about personal revelation is that it's personal revelation. Um, uh, but I've known so many families where this was the concept. Um, or it can be, hey, look, because I've held this position, I can make these declarations and you have to obey my voice as if it was the voice of God. Whether it's, and it's you know, it can be small things about, hey, you know, this is, this is what we're doing. We can try to help people do good things in the wrong way. Um, and I think it's important to recognize you cannot complete God's work with Satan's methodology. Ooh, that's another good one. <laughs> right? some great so, ones. for example, all of us would love to see our children go to church. That's important. Um, I've known many situations where when a child was going through that stage of, okay, well, why do I want to go to church? Maybe I don't want to go to church. Maybe I want to skip out today. And I have heard some parents do some truly horrendous things to children, um, ranging from physical punishments to public humiliation, to things along those lines, to make their child go to church because, you know, God knew Abraham's heart and he would command his children to do good after him. And that's the way they're thinking about this. I'm like, well, unfortunately, what you taught your children is that when you don't get what you want, you're willing to hurt them. Um, and that you're going to do so and say, God endorses me hurting you right now. I think that's the most unchristlike. <laughs> representation i could imagine and so spiritual abuse is any attempt for someone to use the idea of the gospel the priesthood covenants to control what someone else is thinking feeling or doing um, to punish someone else to condemn someone else to limit someone's options um, and this, this can look like so many things. Like I'm aware of, of I, I know so many, one, one thing I love about so many faithful Latter-day Saints is they would rather sacrifice tremendously instead of sinning. There's so much they'd be willing to give up to avoid being disobedient. And if I'm someone who's interested in controlling other people, that's something I can learn to exploit. If I can twist something to say, this is what the church teaches, this is what the gospel teaches, if I can take their spiritual feelings and somehow try to weld them to the way I'm trying to control them, for a lot of really faithful Latter-day Saints, that 
that creates a willingness to sacrifice even their own lives rather than feel like what they're doing would be disloyal to God. And I think, Richard, I think a lot about the work that you do. And part of what you help people with is so many people are saying, on the one hand, I love these wonderful brothers and sisters. And on the other, I'm so worried that what I'm doing might be disloyal to God. And so I feel torn, right? And you encounter that all the time. I think it's, it's the same thing with, with any kind of spiritual abuse is when you can create that kind of false sense of, hey, doing this would be disloyal, then you can lead very good people to either do tremendously wrong things or to allow themselves to be harmed and controlled in frightening ways. And so the idea is that not all that claims to be Israel is of Israel, not all that claims to be spiritual authorities of spiritual authority. How do we begin to discern between what it looks like? And Doctrine and Covenants 121 is a wonderful guide to say, look, at the end of the day, God does not use coercion or force. He uses love, long-suffering, patience, goodness, he recognizes the agency of others. If they're going to choose for a time to do something besides what God is saying, he doesn't drop, you know, brimstone out of heaven on their heads. You know, God is not Zeus. He's not waiting to zap people with lightning bolts. He recognizes that people are works in progress. So when anyone tries to do that, claiming they're doing so with God's authority, again, it's someone who's saying, I'm doing God's work in Satan's methodology. And Satan's methodology is not capable of doing God's work. It's a great segment. One last segment, and then we'll um, sign off, listeners. But talk to somebody who's in abuse right now, and maybe somebody who's aware they're in an emotionally abusive relationship, maybe sometimes physically, but they're, they kind of are going this like the scale, like if I get out of this relationship, I've got kids, our whole life may be worse off, there's shame in my faith community, in my family that I've gotten myself in this relationship, and so I'm kind of cognitively aware that it's an unhealthy relationship, but in the totality of everything, I'm not sure it's worth getting out because yeah. of the impact on kids, my financial situation. It's not, um, I'm not... I'm not physically unsafe in the sense I'm worried for my physical health or the health of my children, but it's it's a toxic, abusive relationship, and I'm just sort of not quite sure what to do here. Any just general principles you'd give? Sure. So one thing I would tell anyone in any kind of abusive relationship is, first of all, the emotional abuse is actually the most damaging part and the longest lasting part. In fact, not only does it, does it affect you on an emotional level, but we've learned that it changes you physically. There's a whole process called epigenetics, um, where as you are gone, or as you're going through the prolonged stress of all of these mind games that goes on, your body will go through changes. Um, many people become more prone, develop all kinds of illnesses and diseases. But that also gets passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and so you being in an abusive relationship is about you 
and it's about everyone who's going to come from you in the future. So I think sometimes people get worried because they're feeling selfish. They're saying, well, this is just about me. And I'm worried that, you know, if I make some changes, that it will lead to a worse life for my children, for my grandchildren. But the more we've learned is that staying in an abusive relationship is what creates more trouble for children and grandchildren, both from an emotional point of view, but also because of the, the impact on their physical health. And so what you're doing are our feelings, our emotions, our psychology is as real as our body. Um, and so when you're thinking about all of this saying, but it's just, it's just verbal, it's just emotional. It's like saying, it's just the worst part. Don't worry about it. Right. So from there, I think another thing that's really important, it says in the scriptures as well, where there is no vision, the people perish. What's very hard for most people in an abusive relationship is to imagine that leaving it will somehow lead to something better because they, they see all the roadblocks, they see all their obstacles. Um, they're saying, I will probably be single and unloved. I'll probably be in a ward that looks at me like I'm a leper and they're just waiting for all my skin to fall off. My children will be shunned. People will ask where the other parent is. They will look down their nose at me. They will shame me. I'll be in poverty forever. Um, and these, I, I can completely understand each one of these perceptions, partially because these things are actively taught. This is the, this is the gospel of an abuser to say, here's all the reasons you can't leave. And boy, you're, no one's going to put up with you the way I put up with you. And you hear it enough, it becomes internalized. But what I think is really important, and this is one of the reasons I think it's important to be connected with other people who've gone through the same thing, is to find the gospel is a story over and over again of the Lord delivering people out of oppression. It's not even like there's one or two instances of that in the scriptures. It is the theme of the scriptures over and over again. And I have to believe that the Lord is giving us that message saying, you know, Israel saw no way out of bondage. Um, the people in the Book of Mormon who are being tied up with, you know, bondage on their back, they had Lamanites around them. If they prayed out loud, they would be slain. They saw no way forward. The anti-Nephi-Lehi's thought the Nephites would never, ever accept them. And so it was better just to stay and be slaughtered. Well, over and over again, the Lord has said, I see things larger than you do. I often like to say that God plays a very long chess game. And he's got all of these pieces that he's put in place that you don't even see until you arrive at the next square you've been moved to. And so the important thing is to say, you need to know that those things that you fear, you have a reason that you fear them. But that's partially because that is the impact of the emotional abuse, the psychological control. Over and over again, I can't tell you how many stories I've encountered of people who find, they find a way. They find people who help them, lift them, understand them, create opportunities, help them heal. That loneliness they think they're going to have for the rest of their life doesn't materialize. That lifelong poverty, there are ways that are found around that. They're delivered. All of those things that make it seem like life is going to be tremendously worse 
when you go through it step by step, just like you take that first step into the Red Sea and that's when it parts. And then you do that 20 times <laughs> over and over again. That's part of why it's so important is when you are in the abusive relationship, the only narrative you have is the abusive relationship. When you begin to recognize that you have another choice and you find a whole world of people who have found that on the other side is not the land of desolation, but a path to Zion, then that's what gives people courage to say, I'm going to make a different choice. This has been just a terrific podcast. You have a very soothing voice. If I needed to talk to you as my therapist, I think I could trust you and you have a gift of communication. You've said some really wonderful lines, like we can't um, complicated, um, can't complete God's will with Satan's methodology. That was a golden line. So listeners, um, this is Dr. Ryan Anderson, marriage and family therapist, father of four, with a really terrific book, um, The Choice to Leave Abuse. And um, how do people find you if they want to reach out to you? So right now, the, the easiest way to find me is I also have a Facebook page, um, The Choice to Leave Abuse, um, at The Choice to Leave Abuse on Facebook. Um, also, people can reach me um, professionally. I'll actually give you my professional email. Um, it's just my first name. Uh, sorry, if I'm my first initial and my last name, R Anderson, A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N, at T-E-L-O-S dot org. So listeners, we'll put that Facebook page and his email in the show notes so you can scroll down there and um, check out his work and connect with him if you need to. And um, on behalf of all our listeners, you're doing really good work in our community. And I would think that if we got on the podcast for five or 10 years, you're going to talk about this book, open the door to a lot more work in this space for you and perhaps others that want to be in the same space and just recognize this is an area when we know better, we do better. And I would hope um, maybe in five or 10 years, those hundred bishops you referenced, and I was one of those that had no training in this area or wasn't even aware of that stuff, um, 80 to 100 of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, I have no professional training in this area, but I've received enough training in this area that I can recognize this in my ministry and not add to the burdens perhaps with things I don't know. So I encourage everybody to read um, this book and and just so we know better, we do better. And thank you, Dr. Ryan Anderson, for being on the podcast. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me here today. All right, listeners, take care. This is Richard Oster and Ryan Anderson signing off. <laughs>